Good morning, everyone. Well, it is good to be back. Most of you know that uh, Ben and I were uh, visiting some of our church partners in the Middle East, um, and uh, we just touched down in Boston yesterday afternoon. And so we are incredibly excited to uh, be back with you all. We missed you dearly. Uh, but it was also uh, a blessing to see the work of God among the nations and to see how he's been at work in uh, our dear church partners and just the things that he's been teaching them and showing them and doing through them. And so we'll have lots of stories to share in more intimate settings. Uh, so I'll leave that there. But I'm excited to be back here. It's uh, it was a joy to see songs sung to Jesus in another language, but I love hearing your voices, and I love singing with you all, and I love that our hearts have been joined together to exalt the name of Jesus. And so as we continue in our series uh, uh, this morning, we're continuing our way through the book of Exodus, we will be looking at the third of the Ten Commandments, and that commandment has everything to do with the name of God. And so, uh, as a, a recap and to re-emphasize before we get into the text, um, the Ten Commandments, also known as the, the Decalogue, and that word just means the, the ten words or the ten sayings. And so, we, we tack on commandments, but in the Hebrew mind, it wouldn't have been as, it, it, it enveloped more than just a command, but it was a, a way of life. And so, the ten sayings of God. As Pastor Dave alluded to weeks ago, this was like the constitution for the nation of Israel. It was a binding agreement. It was more than just a, a list of commands, but it was the sayings of life for the people of God. And so what's really unique about the Decalogue is that its commands do not need a context-specific reading, nor do they need an updated explanation in light of the new covenant. They are eternally binding for the people of God, just as they are. When applied to us, their fulfillment does not change with context like the civil laws of Israel do, nor do they become abrogated in Christ like the ceremonial laws of Israel. They are binding just as they are for the body of Jesus Christ. And so as we enter into the word of God this morning. Let us come in fear and in trembling, but also with hope and joy, knowing that it is for us and for our life and godliness that we might know the God whom we serve. And so if you're able, please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let us pray. Lord, holy are you and worthy is your name. May we be a people who see you for who you are and rightly apprehend your words to us. Would we not run and hide by trying to excuse ourselves from the plain teaching of your word? But would we know it's for our life, it's for our joy, and it is a gift to your people that we might worship you and join you 
in the reverence and in the exaltation of your name in all the earth. Lord, please give us hearts and minds to see you for who you are. May, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear all that you are showing and uh, all that you are giving the church this morning. For your name's sake, we pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Such a simple command, and yet one that so many disobey, even in the church. Because we don't know the weight of the name. And so I'm not going to stick to the very specific points this morning, but I do have them. So if you're being attentive, you you can write them as we go. But um, I'm really hoping to build and uh, 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 an argument and ha- have us thrust ourselves into the weightiness of who God is this morning. And so I don't really care if you track with the points or not, but if you just get a glimpse of who God is and why he cares for his name. So what is in a name? And what is the name of God? The proper and personal name of the Lord is Yahweh. This is the name revealed to Moses at the burning bush. In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And in ancient Hebrew, the Hebrew that uh, the Old Testament was written in, there are no vowels. You have only consonants. So we don't really know how it was, it was spoken. But the name Yahweh is basically the verb to be. So his name, I am who I am, is Yahweh. And this is the name he gave Moses at the burning of the bush. There are many names ascribed to the Lord throughout the scriptures by various people. And the Lord even gives himself other names. But in all of these have significance. For instance, When Hagar flees her mistress, Sarah, for becoming pregnant with Ishmael, she names her son God who hears, but she gives the Lord a name because he is the God who sees her. He is the God who sees her. And we see this sort of thing happening throughout the scriptures where the Lord is given a name because of how he has revealed himself to an individual in a moment. And they're all meant that we might see the the larger picture of who he is. But while those names have significance, they're not his personal name. They're not the the personal covenant name that he gives to his people. And so in revealing his personal name, Yahweh, to his people, the Lord is communicating his character, his weight, his immensity, Weight is really the best way to describe holiness. It's this other, it's this in glory, primarily. It's this otherworldly immensity. And the best word we have in English is glory. But he's communicating his character, his, his weight, his immensity, his eternality. I am who I am. It's the verb to be. I just exist. Or Some renderings is, I will be who I will be. So we not only see the character of God, but we see the intimacy of his covenant relationship to us. All that is communicated in the name Yahweh. 
And so knowing the name Yahweh and receiving the fullness of that name is a gift reserved for the covenant people of God. It's for us. It's for us as a gift. No other. No, no nations, no peoples, only those who belong to God are told the name. And so as a as, as for, for clarification's sake, and you might want to write this in your Bibles or, or put it to, to heart, throughout the Old Testament, you will often see that the name of God as Lord in capital letters. You'll see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, with the O-R and the D being slightly smaller text than the L. That is a substitute word for the name Yahweh. This is because Jewish scribes over the years who copied the Hebrew Bible over and over and over again were actually very afraid of the third commandment. They did not want to write down the name Yahweh because they don't even utter the name Yahweh because they're so afraid of breaking the commandment. And so the word that they use as a replacement word is a Hebrew word, Adonai, and it it does mean Lord. The reason in our English Bibles it's capital letters because we see Lord as someone who is master, Lord over his people. That will not have all capital letters. That's also Adonai. But in this place, the capital letters, the English translators are doing that to tell us in the original text, it's Yahweh. But we're honoring the manuscripts that we're using by writing Adonai. But you can read it as Yahweh. And some modern English translations do use Yahweh. Um, That's important. That's important because we're going to look at a lot of texts today. And we're going to see how important the name Yahweh is. And so when you see the Lord, the Lord, you can think of Yahweh, Yahweh. And we're going to, because of the nature of this command and it being one verse, we have to somewhat build a case for what all the Lord is getting at in order for us to obey the command. And so if we look to Exodus 33 and 34, we're going to begin to see things uh, form for us and and things will begin to to come to light. In Exodus 33, um, starting in verse 17, at this point, the commandments um, had been given at a time and the people are rebelling. The Lord has been blessing them and the people are rebelling. And, the, and Moses is pleading with them again, uh, pleading with the Lord on their behalf because of their rebelliousness. And earlier in 33, starting in 32 and 33, the Lord is so upset, he tells Moses, I'll give you a new nation if you want. Like, I'll just, I'll kill all these people because they're so rebellious in their hearts. And Moses pleads for the people and says, no, no, you promised that these people would belong to you. And the Lord, of course, relents in his heart because of the prayers of Moses. And so this is after the golden calf. And Moses has to go back up the mount with a second set of tablets. And so it's at this second, it's just this second ascension up the mount that, the Lord, that this happens in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken... I will do. He's talking about having mercy on Israel. And then Moses requested to see the glory of God. So this is what he's responding to. This very thing 
you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand until you have passed by. And so look at the order here. The Lord's name is enveloped. It's surrounded by his goodness, his grace, and his mercy towards his people. He says, he asked to show his glory, and the Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So on one side you have goodness, I will proclaim my name before you, the name Yahweh. It's here, and then on the other side of it, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and merciful to whom I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So then it's like there's a sandwich being given of glory, and in the center of the sandwich, enveloped by mercy and goodness, is his name. And so the center of the gift of the revelation is the name of God, Yahweh, Later down in Exodus 34, starting in verse 5, this is when, so the the Lord says, I'm going to do these things, and then he actually does this thing. And, And look what the text says. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. It also can mean to a thousand generations. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Take us for your inheritance. Here at the revelation of the name to Moses, the name of Yahweh, we see this mercy unveiled, unveiled even further. What we find is not only the substance of Yahweh's mercy and grace, but his commitment to it in genuine covenant. His mercy and his grace abounds with steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping this love for thousands or to a thousand generations. What does the Lord do within this steadfast love and faithfulness that endures from generation to generation. What's the application of this love? Forgiving us of our iniquities, our transgressions, and our sin. And yet, he will by no means clear the guilty. But he will indeed visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We, his church, have received this 
revelation of the nature and character of the Lord exclusively through the giving of his name, Yahweh. He has given it to us. He has declared it to us. And this is the fullness of his name. All of that that we read is bound to this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is what's in a name. We see in this fullness what's necessary in order to worship him rightly. Namely, we see the strictness, excuse me, he, we see his mercy and his strictness. We see both his love and his discipline. Associated with the name is the same severity of discipline from the second commandment that you looked at last week. The Lord takes the honor and the privilege of knowing his name just as seriously as the worship of him as the one true God. I'm going to repeat that. The Lord takes the honor and privilege of knowing his name just as seriously as the worship of him as the one true God. The same language being used here is the language of the second commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me. The results of breaking that commandment are the same. And so what then do we make of the command that says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What is the sin then of vanity? It's plain. It's a very plain command. Don't take his name in vain. But truthfully, English doesn't do the best job at communicating the full scope of the verb here to take. It doesn't mean just to acquire something, though that's a very common use of the word. Uh, in, in the original text, there's an idea behind the word. And this idea is of carrying something, lifting up, or even exalting. So another way to understand the command is this. Do not lift up or exalt the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. So what then does vain mean? I think most of us have a very good working definition of the word, but... For clarity's sake, for something to be vain means it's empty, it's worthless, it's inconsequential, it's flippant. You could even say it's, it's irreverent. So when we put these working definitions together, we can also say that this is a command to not lift up or exalt the name of Yahweh in any way that does not communicate his worth or his immensity, his glory or his holiness. Any use of the name that does not bring honor to it by communicating that is his name being used in vain. The lifting up of his name is for the full recognition of his weight or his gravity, his glory. When we understand this, we see two things, okay? And 
each point I'm going to spend some time in. But remember, two things. The first is that any use of his name that does not communicate his holiness is vain. This means that any use of the name of the Lord flippantly or without reverence is breaking this command. And the breaking of the command isn't reserved for Yahweh only, okay? There's, this, this is the personal name. With what we see in how God's name is abused today, everyone's talking about Yahweh, the God of the Bible. When someone says, oh my God, they're not talking about Shiva. They're not talking about Allah. So when your coworker says Jesus Christ as if it's a cuss word, a cuss word or good Lord as an expletive, or when they say, oh my God, as an exclamation, they are using the name of the Lord over all the earth in vain. Let's hit a little closer to home, shall we? This one is for our beloved state. Jesus Crow is a euphemism for Jesus Christ. No one is fooling anyone with that. May it not be on the lips of our mouths. I don't care how local it is. It is a euphemism. It even sounds like it. If you find that these words are on your lips, repent. Repent. You are unequivocally breaking the third command and sinning against the God of your salvation. Repent because he will not hold guiltless the one who takes his name in vain. So that's our first point that we see, that any use of his name that does not communicate his holiness is in vain. The second thing is this, any exaltation of the name of the Lord in pretense is also taking his name in vain. If you are praising the name of God or singing the name of Jesus, but, you're, but you delight in falsehood or you have affection for any other thing, you are breaking the third commandment. Throughout the prophets, we see this charge brought against the people of God. In Isaiah 29, the prophet says, The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and they fear, the fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Because of these things, he is far from them. This is the sin of the day. We either speak of the Lord casually or we come to worship as if it means nothing. Not only must our words properly communicate the worthiness of his name, but our hearts must rejoice with the exaltation of our lips. Anything less is to dishonor the name. And I, I do want to bring a side note. This perhaps is helpful to me, and I hope it is to you. This is not a call to some sort of personal introspection that's looking for perfection before we utter the name on our lips. It, what, it, what I'm really getting at is say what you mean and mean what you say. 
this is the same ditch that the Jewish scribes fell into in being afraid to write his name down. We don't have to have that fear. But the commandment is that if we're going to exalt his name, let us mean it. We must be humble and, con and contrite, believing that he shows steadfast love to a thousand generations. And so when we say Jesus is Lord, we mean it and we can say it. And because we are coming in humility and banking on the righteousness of Christ, we don't have to fear and live in this place where we think, maybe I don't mean it. Or maybe my heart's a little off today. No, come, believe the word, sing the praise of God, and go in the joy of his goodness towards you because he shows steadfast love to a thousand generations. But all that is what vanity looks like. May we not use his name in a way that is irreverent, that treats it like a cuss word or a filler. And when we come and worship together as his people, may we actually mean what we say. It's fair to ask, why does this all matter? I think it's a good question to ask anytime you read the scriptures, why? And God will tell you why. He will tell you why. If those things are to be avoided, what then does proper exaltation of the name of Yahweh look like? I want us to spend time looking at two places in Scripture. The first is going to be Psalm 138, 1 through 6. David writes, I give thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. For they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Notice what David does in response to the Lord's exaltation of his name. The exaltation of his name is in verse 2. But how does David, so the respo his response to that actually comes before that. What is that response? He gives thanks with his whole heart. He sings the praise of God before all the gods. Before all the gods or in our modern world, before any power, authority, or thing that would compete for the glory of God. Of God. He bows down toward the temple of God and gives thanks for his steadfast love and faithfulness. Does that sound familiar? 
Do you see the connection to Exodus 34? Because David rightly exalted the name of Yahweh in response to Yahweh's own exaltation of his name, as seen in verse 2, the Lord hears him on the day that he calls and increases the strength of his soul. David took what the law said and he banked on it. He took the commandment and all that had been revealed in the scriptures, he says, I will sing to the Lord. We have his name. We're his people. And our response must be shaped by this. He gives thanks with his whole heart. He sings the praise of God before all the gods. And in, and in David's world, that would have been like all the spirits and the principalities and all the powers of the earth even. Because that term was often used even for people. David's saying, before all men, before all kings and princes, before all the world, I will sing the praise of God. There is no power or authority or thing that I will not proudly sing the name of Yahweh before. And he bows down toward the temple of God. Interestingly enough, the temple that we know is built, is built by his son. But David writes many psalms regarding the temple because he has a vision of the dwelling place of God. And so David lives before the eyes of heaven and he sets his heart and his mind towards the throne room of God. He knows that his life is being observed by his creator and his judge. And so he bows down toward the holy temple of the Lord in all that he does. All because of the name. All because of the name that will be exalted above all things with the word of God. It's in this manner, it's in this pattern that when God's people rightly exalt God's name with words and action, it's in this manner that the glory of God is seen throughout all the earth. Verse 4, all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. How did they hear the words of God's mouth? through the song and exaltation of David. And they too shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. This is the pattern, church. Our greatest witness to the enemy nations, princes and kings of the earth that as of yet, do not bow down to God as their maker. Our weapon, the weapon of our warfare, is exalting the name, is singing high the praises of Yahweh, unapologetically. Hebrews says that our song is the replacement, our praise is the replacement of the animals burned up on the altar. So just as in the... In the uh, in the ceremonial laws, 
animals were given as a sacrifice and an offering, and the Lord found it a sweet-smelling aroma that pleased him. So now our songs rise as a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, and he is pleased. Our sacrifice is that of our lips and our lives. And what's the Lord's response to any who would rightly see him and any who would exalt his name? Verse 6, the Lord regards those who humble themselves before his name. To the one who is humble and contrite and seeks to honor his name in all things, to this one will the Lord regard and show his steadfast love and faithfulness. May we not think we know better or know sufficiently or know that, well, God's going to show grace. I'll just do what I do. No. We must be humble, setting ourselves as abased men before the throne room of the king that he might lift us up. The Lord says he opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. If we want to be exalted with the Lord our God, we must humbly set ourselves before him, banking on his promises. That's the first place I want to look. So we see we're looking at the exaltation of his name. That's the first place. Second place we're going to be in is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So feel free, jump to the New Testament, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And we're going to bring this, we're going to bring this home and uh, make some inroads into uh, really the themes of Scripture and how it all has its fullness in Christ. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Look at this text in light of what we just read in Psalm 138. We see now the reward for Jesus' humility in submitting himself completely to the Father in not considering his own deity as something to be grasped, but coming in the likeness of men, incarnating among us, and obeying his Father to the point of death. The reward for all that is the exaltation of his name. Because in all that, he set his face like a flint for the glory of his Father. And so in Jesus exalting the name of Yahweh through his humility 
and his condescension, he now is exalted. And he is given a name above every name. So just see what the fullness of God's design is here. As a man, Jesus has humbled himself completely before God the Father and is therefore regarded by the Father and is exalted by him with a name above every name. But it doesn't just stop there. Jesus is also the word of God. And per Psalm 138 verse 2, the name and the word are exalted above all things. The Lord says, I, will, I have exalted my name and my word above all things. And we see all this climax in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is the name and the word. And so from the very beginning, from when the Lord spoke directly with Adam and Eve to the garden, to the revealing of himself to the patriarchs, to the burning bush, to the giving of the law. At every moment when he reveals his name and his nature, he has always been directing his purposes to the exaltation of his name, Yahweh, through the exaltation of the Son of God, whose name is Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. So it is now by this name, the name of Jesus, that every knee must bow and every tongue must confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the picture? Do you see the completion of the heart of God in exalting his name among the, the nations? And how Jesus, all the while, is fulfilling not only the word, but the heart and desire of his Father. Church, we must be a people who regard the name of the Lord as the Lord regards it himself. Exodus 34, 14 says this. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Again, not his proper personal name, but as I mentioned earlier, he gives himself names to communicate his nature. He is a jealous God. He's jealous, if you don't remember anything else this week, remember this one. The Lord is jealous for his name because he is jealous for his fame. So much so that his name is jealous. David writes in Psalm 69.9 that the zeal of the house of the Lord consumes him so much that the reproaches of those who reproach the Lord have fallen on him. What David is saying is I'm so stirred and captivated by the Lord and his kingdom, i.e. his name, all that belongs to his name. He's so stirred and captivated by the name that when the enemies of the Lord mock the Lord, mock the name, he feels the mockery. It burns him up inside. And Jesus felt this way too. This very verse, Psalm 69.9, is used twice to describe Jesus in the New Testament. Once in the Gospel of John and another time in Paul's letter to Rome. If David felt this way, and if the Lord Jesus felt this way, then we must too. 
We must too. There is no neutrality with the name. We either honor it or we reproach it. If the Father is jealous for his name and if David and the Lord Jesus himself are zealous for the name, then we must, as the people of God, be marked by both a zeal and a jealousy for the name of God. Far be it for any of us to misuse it. Far be it for any of us to misuse and misappropriate the name of God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. As we conclude and bring this to a closing, I want to, before I kind of give our final charge, think about why it's important. Sometimes we think that words are meaningless, but they're not. A name is an identity, and a word has power. This is why Jesus is the Logos from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word for word is Logos, and it means the power behind a word. The power or the, the intensity, the the intelligence behind it. And so it's not just something that we utter, but it's something that communicates life or death, blessing or cursing. And I think to illustrate that, even think about if you're married, think about how you relate to your own spouse. Hopefully you say, I love you a lot, but we often use that so much that we don't always have the feels associated with it and that's okay because we still mean it but we sometimes miss the weight and the glory of that word but imagine one day you woke up and your spouse turned to you and said I hate you would not your world be shattered would not you think that you have just lost your everything because words matter And if words matter, then the name of God matters. Jesus, the living word, matters. It's not something to be dealt with with irreverence or with casualness, but we honor the name by revering it because God, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his name is Yahweh. And he has revealed himself to us through the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ. That every tongue would confess and every knee would bow before him. And so, as we close, our only real application is let us see the glory of the name. Let us speak his name boldly. Let us sing his name loudly and let us praise him among all peoples and may we repent if we have used the name in vain or if we have been unaffected by the world using his name like a cuss word or like a reproach let us repent and let us lift high the name of Yahweh 
Let us declare among all the peoples that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. It is by your name, Jesus, that we say yes and hallelujah to all the promises that are ours, all the goodness, all the mercy, all the grace of God is ours through you. And we know that we belong to you in covenantal love and that that love is to a thousand generations. Lord, have mercy on us. Please give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might exalt the name as we ought. Forgive us. Forgive us for the irreverence in our hearts and in our minds, for the irreverence of our lips. Break us of these things that we might be the people of your pasture, a nation set apart for your name's sake, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. We desire all these things. Thank you for the mercy that is ours in the name. Please humble us that we might be regarded by you and exalted along with our Lord, co-heirs of the kingdom to come. Thank you for your word. Would we not shy away from it or run from it, but would we boldly expose ourselves before you because you are good and in Christ we can gladly submit ourselves to you and to your glory. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.